it's good to be here. I know there's quite a few people out camping and doing things. It's the last weekend of, of uh, summer. You know, we're going to be observing communion this morning. Uh, communion is a very uh, important facet of our walk with God, and it's something that is observed worldwide. Uh, the word communion is really essentially, it, it's, it speaks of sharing something together with other people in an intimate way, sharing something that's in common, a common experience. The, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he wrote a lot about the communion, and, and the book of 1 Corinthians is a lot about order and God being a God of order. And, and in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? So he, asks, he poses this as a question, then he said, the bread which we break... Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That word communion is linked to a Greek word called koinonia, which speaks of, of great intimacy. It speaks of, of togetherness. And so in a little while, we're going to participate. We have open communion here at New Life, which means if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join us. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're part of a different church body, a local body in this region, or maybe you're visiting with us this morning from out of town, and you're welcome to join us if you're part of the body of Christ. And we're remembering the significance of what Christ has done for us and the provision that he's made, and, and we take it together. We, we, we're, we're here, and we, we do this as a, as a group. It's a unified effort. It's signifying our common need and our dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have that common need, and, and it's a matter of us identifying with each other that we do have this common need. It's relating. And taking this one step further, do we relate with Jesus Christ? How do we continually or continue to carry on a relationship with him? Do we relate to him? The Apostle Paul also wrote something else in the book of Philippians. He wrote Philippians from a jail. He was in a prisoner based on his love for Jesus. He was, it's what's referred to as the prison epistles. There's a few letters that he wrote from prison. And so he was in a very dark place, a place after persecution. He had been through so much. And yet he expresses the desires of his heart in the letter to the Philippians. And in the third chapter of Philippians, he makes this profound statement that he says, he says this is his prayer. He says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. He's speaking of Christ. That was his heart's desire. I want to know him. And this knowing, again, it comes back to that word koinonia. It's to know by experience. It's to do life with him. It's not just to know about him. And, and we could study the Bible and we can distance ourselves and, and we can have some theology in our head and say, well, that's what I believe. Paul was saying, I want to know him. And this is a man who's traveled and, and he's been out on a missionary journeys for years and years and years. And, and he had many encounters with Christ and yet there was this longing in his heart, I want to know him. How many of y'all want to know him more? Know him. Know by experience. But Paul goes on in this amazing verse and he says that I may know him and the power of the resurrection. He wanted to know the power of the resurrection. And, and that's almost a, a weird statement because that is amazing power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Consider the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I want to know the power of the resurrection. 
This man had been walking in the power of the resurrection for years and years and years already at this point. He has seen the power of God working through the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, he was, he was reaching out and people were getting healed just like that. Account after account. He saw the power of healing. He saw the power of God, the power of the resurrection demonstrated in, in casting demons out of people. People who were tormented in nightmares and, and under this possession and oppression from the powers of darkness. And so he saw that power at work. He saw people getting freed. He saw the, the power to raise the dead. This was already working in him. He raised people that had died back to life. And he also, one of the more powerful ways that he witnessed and experienced the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, is the power to love. He loved people. He loved people who hated him. He loved people who tried to kill him and to mock him. So he knew about this power of the resurrection, and yet that was still his desire. But the verse goes on, even beyond this. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's like, huh? I want to share in, in his sufferings. That was a desire of his heart. I, I don't gamble in certain ways. But I would bet that none of you woke up this morning and, and the first thought was on your mind was, Jesus, I want to share in your sufferings today. Anybody at all? Nobody. Nobody got up and said, you know, I just want to share in your sufferings. You see, suffering is an interesting topic mentioned repeatedly throughout the Word of God. There's something about suffering that links our minds to God. I mean, when you're face-to-face -face with some sort of suffering, your, your thoughts, your mind doesn't go to science. It doesn't go to education. It doesn't go to economics. It goes to religion. It goes to my belief system. It, it, it goes to my, to my faith. It goes to the, the sovereignty of God when, I, when we witness things and when we go through things that are troubling. The, the nature of God. So many times we, we, we question the, the goodness of God. The goodness of God is questioned when we're, when we're going through a hardship, when we see somebody else suffering. And it breaks our hearts when we see people suffering, and, and it's like, why, God? Maybe it's a tragedy. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm just thinking this past week, somebody's house burned down here in Pulaski, and, and, and it's like, they're just sitting there in, in shock. It's like, Why? Why? So there's tragedies, there's, there's losses of, of loved ones. Maybe it's an illness, maybe it's, it's the end of a relationship or a financial hardship, and, and it's some sort of suffering, and nobody enjoys suffering. Nobody enjoys it. I mean, like this week is the first week of school, right? For most people coming up, this is the first week of school, and and, and there's going to be some classrooms where little kids gather around and the teacher's going to say, okay, I want you to share your name and something you like to do. And I can assure you there will be no little ones that say, my name is Billy, and I love to eat pizza, and I love to spend extended periods of time suffering. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. That kid's going to be in the counselor's office, right? 
we got to check that backpack for some drugs. I mean, something's not right here. Why would, this, why would somebody say they, 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 want, they look forward to extended periods of suffering? You know, there's different responses to suffering. Some just accept it. And they say, well, it's just, it's just what I've been dealt. It's just, this is what I got. And sadly to say, there's a lot of Christians who say, well, this is just what it is. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. You know, there's a provision for, for healing. We see people healed here every week. We need, to, we need to pursue the heart of God through our suffering. And many people suffer needlessly. Okay, so there's people who, who can get help, and, and, and so there's, there's many that are suffering needlessly, but there's others who would just have this mindset, it's just, I just got to live with it. Yeah, this disease, yeah, it runs in my family, and blah, 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 and, and it's just my, my burden to bear, and such is life. And so a lot of p- people just accept it and say, well, it's just part of life. Yep, it's just, it's just part of life. And others, on the other side, they avoid suffering at all costs. I mean, it's like, run. Like, like there's this fear, there's this anxiety associated with with suffering, and it's like, no, it's going to get worse, and it's just a panic, and, and it's run to the altar. Every time there's an altar call, please pray for this, and, 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 and call the prayer chain, and get as many people praying, and, and I want to numb the pain as soon as possible. At the, at the very first slight sense of suffering, it's like, I just got to get out of this. I want to escape this, and maybe sometimes even going to social media and saying, there, I did it. I, I got rid of something that I, I don't want to deal with on my own. I just don't want to even think about this. So there's some who would just accept it, and there's some who would run from it. But there's a third response, and that is to be strengthened by it, to rejoice in it. Now this is where the Word of God gets a little weird sometimes at face value. That we are to, we are to look forward to this. Philippians chapter 1 And verse 29 says, there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for Him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. In other words, we have the privilege of suffering as Christ did. We see this in the early church in Acts chapter 5. The apostles were were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders, they, they hated that because religion hates the proclamation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 that the religious leaders, they brought the apostles in and they had them severely beaten. They're flogging them. They're whipping them. And they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And the apostles left there rejoicing. One of the translations say they were thrilled that God had considered them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They left there rejoicing in Acts chapter 16, a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, Paul and Silas in a, in a foreign land in Philippi in a prison after beaten and flogged. And what are they doing? They're rejoicing. Remember, they're singing hymns at midnight and and praising God. That's the night that the jailhouse rocked. And and God did something really powerful. But it was in the midst of this suffering. 1 Peter 4, and verse 12. 
It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So the instruction is, is to rejoice in proportion to, your, to the sharing of the sufferings of Christ. It, so it, it's like a, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on suffering. This is, this is what the Word of God says. So Peter says we are to rejoice as we share in Christ's sufferings. This share, again, is that word communion. It's koinonia. We're to share, we're to find joy, we're to rejoice in this. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. All throughout the New Testament, we find suffering being mentioned over and over and over again. You read through Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Thessalonians and Galatians, you read about suffering. And these are letters written to believers. And I think of, of Paul's letter again to uh, one of the prison epistles to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. James chapter 5 and verse 10 says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Jesus himself has recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 20. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they're going to persecute you as well. There's going to be some suffering involved. Certainly Jesus was no stranger to suffering. We see many different types of suffering in the, in the life of Jesus. Certainly the week, uh, the, the days leading up to the cross, we see he was beaten, that he was spit at, that he was mocked, and he was, he was literally tortured. He knew what physical pain was like. He knew what that kind of suffering was like. Pain in his body. He was a human just like us. And some of you can relate to having a, a body that is dealing with pain. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, pain. Jesus dealt with it. I'm dealing with it. Jesus dealt with physical suffering. He also dealt with emotional suffering. Think of the times when he was mourning the loss of loved ones. When he heard about John the Baptist being killed in prison, he, he, he was troubled. When he went to see Mary and Martha because of Lazarus was dead and, and he was called in there and he saw the people warning and they were, they were questioning this, his resurrection power and it says that he wept. Jesus wept. He was a real person. When he was on the cross, he had to look from the cross at his mother. At his mother. Imagine, we can't even imagine that. And he said, Mother, your son. Son, your mother. We, we think of the, the suffering. He suffered agony over the lostness of people. He wept. He, he, he was grieved over the people of Jerusalem. Have you we wept over the lostness of the people in our region? That's sharing in the sufferings. It's, it's saying, God, people need you. They're desperate for you, and they don't even know it. 
They're longing for you. Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He was, he was crucified. He was, he was sweating drops of blood. That's suffering. He, he was betrayed. He, he was betrayed by the, by the people that He poured into. He felt this sting as they turned back on Him. He suffered abandonment by the people that He, that he ministered to in His time of need. They abandoned Him. They ditched Him. He was all alone. Friends, that's suffering. Every one of us have experienced some of these to some extent where we felt, we felt abandoned. He was despised by his own siblings as they, as they thought, man, he is crazy. We're distancing ourselves from him. He's, he's got too much static in the attic, right? Like, we need to get away from him. He, yeah, he's our brother, but we're going we're gonna to get away from this guy. And so we see there's many different types of suffering that Jesus endured, but I'd like to look briefly this morning at one that is very common, and that is rejection. Rejection. Isaiah 53 in verse 3 says, speaking of Jesus, He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. He was well acquainted with ongoing rejection repeatedly rejection is something that none of us are immune to i've known people who have allowed this type of suffering to literally suck the life out of them oftentimes looking to some sort of destructive coping mechanism which is exactly what the devil wants there's an example in the pages of scripture i'd like to look at briefly of somebody who suffered severe rejection yes their deal was rejection but it could be any type of suffering Yet God used that suffering to bring about something amazing. I think there's something we can learn here because all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things include suffering. This person in the Scriptures, the account is found in Genesis chapter 29 of a woman named Leah. Leah was an older sister of a girl named Rachel. So there's two girls, Leah and then Rachel, and their father's name was Laban. And we read of the account of Jacob, this young man, coming to this place. And he comes to, to work at this, at this place. And it says in verse 29, or chapter 29, that we read that, that Leah was not respected by her father. She was a woman who, who suffered the sting of rejection throughout her life. Instead of marrying her off as the firstborn, we, we see that he pawned her off in a wedding night fiasco. And the account is found here in verse 16. It says, Laban had two daughters and the name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel and Leah's eyes were delicate. Most translations say they were weak. In other words, there was something about her that didn't look healthy. But Rachel, in other words, the younger sister, was beautiful, a form, an appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So Jacob shows up on the scene, he sees these daughters, and he's like, wow, Rachel. So it says that in verse 18, Jacob said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. He's telling the father. He said, I'll work seven years as a dowry for your daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. 
And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled. So seven years had passed. He's looking forward to, to marrying Rachel. And it says in verse 22 that, <clears throat> that Laban gathered together all the men of the place and he made a feast. And now it came to pass in the evening, in other words, the dark of night, okay, so they, they had a little different custom than we do, that he took Leah. Okay, the father takes Leah, his daughter, and he brought her to Jacob. And Jacob went into her. So again, it's a different tradition. We, we, here in the U.S., we date people and we hang out together and we get very familiar with them. Different custom. They were separated. They, they were not involved with premarital sex. Okay, they, he knew this is going to be my future bride. And so we see that on the night here that, that Laban really pawned his daughter off like, like, a, like a hot potato. And the passage goes on to say in verse 25, so it came to pass in the morning. Okay, so in the evening, they're celebrating. She's veiled. It's dark. She, brings, she gets brought into the tent with, with Jacob. Okay, so in the morning, it comes to pass, and it says, and behold, it was Leah. So Jacob is looking at her in the early morning light and just with utter shock on his face, like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he was upset. He was, he, he was shocked. And he was angry. Now friends, imagine Leah in that tent having Jacob look at you with absolute disgust. She had to absorb that somehow. Like, a, like what am I? Am I that much of like a piece of trash in your eyes. She was unwanted. She was unloved. And we read that, Ray, or that Jacob goes out to his father-in-law and says, what's, what's the deal here? Why have you deceived me? In verse 26, it says, Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. In other words, he was being deceptive. He was taking a true statement, but he did it in a deceptive way. Finish this Finish this, meaning Aaliyah's uh, bridal week, seven more days, and then I will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So now he's got two wives, they're sisters. But the scripture says in verse 30 that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Do you think Leah picked up on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, Leah knew she wasn't loved, but in, it was in her suffering that something started to transform her heart. And her spiritual journey through her suffering is reflected in the names that she gave to her children. When we look at this, it says in verse 32 that Leah became pregnant and she gave birth a son and they named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben means see a son. That's what it means. But, but when it is pronounced in, Hebrews, in Hebrew, it sounds like he has seen my misery. That's what it means. That's what it sounds like. So what does all this tell about Leah's life? That she was miserable, that she was hurting. That, that, she, that she had this pain in her friends. It's okay to admit your suffering. Give yourself permission to admit that. It's not spiritual, it's not macho 
to say, you know what, I got my act together. There's no suffering in my life. What are you talking about? That's called pride. And, and so this is what we, we see her doing. We need to, to tell, acknowledge to the Lord, this is, how, this is how I'm going through, this is how I'm processing these things. So even though Leah gave birth to Reuben, she still wasn't loved. Jacob still didn't show her the love that she was longing for. And it says as the, uh, the account continues, in verse 33, that she conceived again. And when she had given birth, she bore a son, and because the Lord, and she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, some translations say that I am hated, that God has given me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Simeon means the one who hears. And so she's, she's, she's telling a story. She believed that because the Lord had heard that she was not loved, that God gave her another son. How many of you ever cried out to God in the midst of your suffering? We all have, right? God hears. He hears us when we cry out. So she's, she's like, God, you see my misery. You're also hearing me. It goes on in verse 34, before long, that Leah had another son. And again she conceived, and when she gave birth, she said, now at last my husband will, will become attached. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> attached to me because I've been born I have borne him three sons so she was she named him Levi Levi means attached connected to okay so in, in a sense it seems as though Leah accepted the fact that she was not going to find this love that her heart was longing for from her husband but that she would be satisfied with just some sort of attachment to him just some sort of attachment. In other words, she could see the source of her suffering wasn't changing and it was out of her control. You see, Leah could have been so absorbed with this suffering that it could have consumed her for the rest of her life. It, it, it could have overwhelmed her. She could have spent the rest of her life focusing on and obsessed with the suffering of not being loved by her husband. But she didn't. You see, friends, sometimes what God intended for a lesson, we turn into an obsession. But it's not meant to be an obsession. It's meant to be a lesson. And we can be so consumed with, with what's going on and we miss the greater picture. We are to be obsessed with God. Amen? So she didn't get obsessed with this fact that that my husband doesn't love me. And so after Leah's third child was born, we see a shift in her focus. A dramatic shift. She conceived again in verse 35. It says, when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And I'm going to name him Judah. Judah in Hebrew means praise. So there was a shift that took place in her, in her mind after years of suffering, her focus turned to the Lord and her pain was overshadowed with praise. And something took place. You see, this time she didn't mention Jacob at all. She found her sense of worth and her value from God. Because in this culture, having babies was considered the favor of God. To go barren, it was like God's not happy with you. And so she's interpreting this and she's absolutely convinced that, that God is blessing her. You see, friends, so we look at this, 
This woman was devalued by her, her father. She was rejected by her husband. She was envied by her sister, but she was loved by God. She was loved by God. She discovered in her suffering a revelation of the goodness of God. It was in the midst of her suffering. You see, for years, Rachel had what Leah, long, what, what Leah longed for, yet Leah became, or she, she came to discover that she was the blessed one. Yeah, she's in love with, with Jacob, but I'm in love with God. And she realized the blessing, and in Leah's suffering, she turned to the Lord and she found her joy in Him. You see, Jacob chose Rachel, but God chose Leah. You see, Leah didn't even realize it at the time, but two of her sons, Levi, would be the priestly line of all of Israel. And then you've got Judah, the royal line, which David came, King David, and eventually Jesus Christ was revealed through the line of Judah, which was from Leah, this one who chose to praise God. Friends, the life of Jesus is still being revealed through those who praise God through their suffering. You know, we may look at this, we may be thinking, this just doesn't make sense. Though. Why, why would our loving Father want to see His children suffer? Why? Why would He allow that? What, what is the point? What is, is the purpose? Friends, He's preparing us for something so much greater. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy, not worthy to compare with the glory which will be revealed in us. You see, friends, there are revelations of the goodness of God that are only discovered through suffering. And that's one of the things the enemy does not want us to get. He doesn't want us to understand that. That's why there's this resistance to suffering for God's glory. If you're th sitting here thinking, you know what, there's got to be a different way. And, and maybe, and, and nobody likes suffering. I don't like suffering. And I don't like to see suffering in other people. But friends, there's people who, will, who dedicate their entire life to stamp out any sort of suffering. And say, it, God cannot allow suffering. This can't be God's plan. Does that sound familiar? That's what the Apostle Peter said. When Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and to fulfill the God's, God's plans. Remember, Peter said, no way, not on my watch, you will not suffer. Right? And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not mindful of the things of God, but of man. The hindrance was, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to suffer. It's not necessary. So Peter was rebuked for having this thought pop into his head. That's why we need to discern our thoughts. He's like, no, 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 suffering bad. And the enemy had put that thought in his head. Later on, Peter realized the significance of suffering and fulfilling God's plans. Listen to what Peter himself wrote. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, For this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. This is Peter, the one who said no, no, no to suffering. Now Peter's writing, oh yeah, there's suffering, there's value here. 
that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus had done nothing to deserve the suffering, but he entrusted, he committed himself to his loving Father. And the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, speaking of Christ, who himself bore our sins, in his own body on the tree of the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You see, friends, it was through Jesus' suffering that we have the forgiveness of sins. That a provision has been made for the healing of ourselves. Sozo, body, mind, and spirit complete healing, but it, it came at a cost. There was some suffering, but life came from suffering. That's still true today. Do you know this life? Do you know this life that is promised us? There's one type of suffering that none of us will ever have to go through that Jesus went through, and that's the suffering on the cross where he took every one of our sins he looked ahead 2,000 years and he saw every one of us and he said, you know what, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take the iniquities and the, the transgressions of all these folks and I'm going to let them weigh on me so you don't have to share in that suffering. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's something none of us ever, ever have to utter from our lips. That's one type of suffering that we can, we can say, you know what, Jesus, you've done that for me. I said you would bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for loving us. You, the word says you are love, and yet sometimes we question some of your decisions, and we know that there is freedom, Lord, that you want us to continue to pursue. You don't enjoy watching us suffer. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that would press towards your heart during times of suffering. That you use it as a tool to grow us, to develop us. So we receive this and we we embrace this suffering for your namesake. And for that, we're grateful. In Jesus' name.